Chapter Twenty Six of the Deerslayer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deerslayer by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter Twenty Six. Upon two stony tables spread before her, she leaned her bosom more than stony hard. There slept the impartial judge and strict restorer of wrong or right, with pain or with reward. There hung the score of all our debts, the card where good and bad and life and death were painted. Was never heart of mortal so untainted, but when the roll was read with thousand terrors fainted. Giles Fletcher, Christ's Victory in Heaven 65. We've done an unthoughtful thing, Sarpent. Yes, Judith, we've done an unthoughtful thing in taking life with an object no better than vanity," exclaimed Deerslayer, when the Delaware held up the enormous bird by its wings and exhibited the dying eyes riveted on its enemies with the gaze that the helpless ever fasten on their destroyers. "'Twas more becoming two boys to gratify their feelings in this unthoughtful manner than two warriors on a war-path, even though it be their first. Ah's me! Well, as a punishment, I'll quit you at once, and when I find myself alone with them bloody-minded Mingos, it's more than like I'll have occasion to remember that life is sweet, even to the beasts of the woods and the fowls of the air. There, Judith, there's Kildeer. Take him back again, and keep him for some hand that's more desiring to own such a piece. I know none as deserving as your own, dear Slayer, answered the girl in haste. None but yours shall keep the rifle. If it depended on skill, you might be right enough, gal, but we should know when to use firearms, as well as how to use em. I haven't learnt the first duty yet, it seems, so keep the peace till I have. The sight of a dying and distressed creature, even though it be only a bird, brings wholesome thoughts to a man who don't know how soon his own time may come, and who is pretty certain that it will come afore the sun sets. I'd give back all my vain feelins and rejoicings in hand, and I, if that poor eagle was only on its nest again, with its young, praising the Lord for anything that we can know about the matter, for health and strength." The listeners were confounded with this proof of sudden repentance in the hunter, and that, too, for an indulgence so very common that men seldom stop to weigh its consequences, or the physical suffering it may bring on the unoffending and helpless. The Delaware understood what was said, though he scarce understood the feelings which had prompted the words, and by way of disposing of the difficulty he drew his keen knife and severed the head of the sufferer from its body. "'What a thing is power,' continued the hunter, "'and what a thing it is to have it and not to know how to use it. It's no wonder, Judith, that the great so often fail of their duties, when even the little and the humble find it so hard to do what's right and not to do what's wrong. Then how one evil act brings others atter it. Now, wasn't it for this furlough of mine, which must soon take me back to the Mingos, I'd find this creature's nest, if I travelled the woods a fortnight, though an eagle's nest is soon found by them that understands the bird's nature. But I'd travel a fortnight rather than not find it, just to put the young two out of their pain. "'I'm glad to hear you say this, dear Slayer,' observed Hetty and God will be more apt to remember your sorrow for what you've done than the wickedness itself. 
I thought how wicked it was to kill harmless birds while you were shooting, and meant to tell you so. But I don't know how it happened. I was so curious to see if you could hit an eagle at so great a height that I forgot altogether to speak till the mischief was done. That's it. That's just it, my good Hetty. We can all see our faults and mistakes when it's too late to help them. Howsever, I'm glad you didn't speak, for I don't think a word or two would have stopped me, just at that moment, and so the sin stands in its nakedness, and not aggravated by any unheeded calls to forbear. Well, well, bitter thoughts are hard to be borne at all times, but there's times when they're harder than at others. Little did Deerslayer know, while thus indulging in feelings that were natural to the man, and so strictly in accordance with his own unsophisticated and just principles, that in the course of the inscrutable providence, which so uniformly and yet so mysteriously covers all events with its mantle, the very fault he was disposed so severely to censure was to be made the means of determining his own earthly fate. The mode and the moment in which he was to feel the influence of this interference it would be premature to relate, but both will appear in the course of the succeeding chapters. As for the young man, he now slowly left the ark, like one sorrowing for his misdeeds, and seated himself in silence on the platform. By this time the sun had ascended to some height, and its appearance, taken in connection with his present feelings, induced him to prepare to depart. The Delaware got the canoe ready for his friend, as soon as apprised of his intention, while Hist busied herself in making the few arrangements that were thought necessary to his comfort. All this was done without ostentation, but in a way that left Deerslayer fully acquainted with, and equally disposed to appreciate, the motive. When all was ready, both returned to the side of Judith and Hetty, neither of whom had moved from the spot where the young hunter sat. "'The best friends must often part,' the last began, when he saw the whole party grouped around him. Yes. Friendship can't alter the ways of Providence, and let our feelings be as they may, we must part. I've often thought there's moments when our words dwell longer on the mind than common, and when advice is remembered just because the mouth that gives it isn't likely to give it again. No one knows what will happen in this world, and therefore it may be well, when friends separate, under a likelihood that the parting may be long, to say a few words in kindness as a sort of keepsake. If all but one will go into the ark, I'll talk to each in turn, and what is more, I'll listen to what you may have to say back again, for it's a poor counsellor that won't take as well as give." As the meaning of the speaker was understood, the two Indians immediately withdrew as desired, leaving the sisters, however, still standing at the young man's side. A look of deerslayers induced Judith to explain. "'You can advise Hetty as you land,' she said hastily, "'for I intend that she shall accompany you to the shore.' "'Is this wise, Judith? It's true that, under common circumstances, a female mind is a great protection among redskins, but when their feelings are up, and they're bent on revenge, it's hard to say what may come to pass. Besides—' "'What were you about to say, dear Slayer?' asked Judith, whose gentleness of voice and manner amounted nearly to tenderness though she struggled hard to keep her emotions and apprehensions in subjection, why simply that there are sights and doin's that one, even as little gifted with reason and memory as Hetty here, might better not witness. So, Judith, you would do well to let me land alone, and to keep your sister back." "'Never fear for me, dear Slayer,' put in Hetty, who comprehended enough of the discourse to know its general drift. 
I'm feeble-minded, and that, they say, is an excuse for going anywhere, and what that won't excuse will be overlooked on account of the Bible I always carry. It is wonderful, Judith, how all sorts of men, the trappers as well as the hunters, red men as well as white, mingos as well as Delawares, do reverence and fear the Bible. I think you have not the least ground to fear any injury, Hetty, answered the sister, and therefore I shall insist on your going to the Huron camp with our friend. Your being there can do no harm, not even to yourself, and may do great good to Deerslayer. This is not a moment, Judith, to dispute, and so have the matter your own way, returned the young man. Get yourself ready, Hetty, and go into the canoe, for I've a few parting words to say to your sister, which can do you no good. Judith and her companion continued silent, until Hetty had so far complied as to leave them alone, when Deerslayer took up the subject as if it had been interrupted by some ordinary occurrence, and in a very matter-of-fact way. Words spoken at parting, and which may be the last we ever hear from a friend, are not soon forgotten, he repeated, and so, Judith, I intend to speak to you like a brother, seeing I'm not old enough to be your father. In the first place, I wish to caution you again your enemies, of which two may be said to haunt your very footsteps, and to beset your ways. The first is uncommon good looks, which is as dangerous a foe to some young women as a whole tribe of Mingos should prove, and which calls for great watchfulness, not to admire and praise, but to distrust and circumvent. Yes, good looks may be circumvented, and fairly outwitted, too. In order to do this you've only to remember that they melt like the snows and when once gone they never come back again. The seasons come and go, Judith, and if we have winter with storms and frosts, and spring with chills and leafless trees, we have summer with its sun and glorious skies, and fall with its fruits and a garment thrown over the forest, that no beauty of the town could rummage out of all the shops in America. Arth is an eternal round, the goodness of God bringing back the pleasant when we've had enough of the unpleasant but it's not so with good looks. They are lent for a short time in youth, to be used and not abused, and, as I never met with a young woman to whom Providence has been as bountiful as it has to you, Judith, in this particular, I warn you, as it might be with my dying breath, to beware of the enemy, friend or enemy, as we deal with the gift." It was so grateful to Judith to hear these unequivocal admissions of her personal charms that much would have been forgiven to the man who made them, let him be who he might. But at that moment, and from a far better feeling, it would not have been easy for Deerslayer seriously to offend her, and she listened with a patience which, had it been foretold only a week earlier, it would have excited her indignation to hear. "'I understand your meaning, Deerslayer,' returned the girl with a meekness and humility that a little surprised her listener, and hoped to be able to profit by it. But you have mentioned only one of the enemies I have to fear. Who or what is the other? The other is given way before your own good sense and judgment, I find, Judith. Yes, he's not as dangerous as I supposed. Howsever, having opened the subject, it will be as well to end it honestly. The first enemy you have to be watchful of, as I've already told you, Judith, is uncommon good looks and the next is an uncommon knowledge of the circumstance. If the first is bad, the last doesn't in any way mend the matter, so far as safety and peace of mind are concerned. How much longer the young man would have gone on in his simple and unsuspecting but well-intentioned manner, it might not be easy to say, had he not been interrupted by his listeners bursting into tears, 
and giving way to an outbreak of feeling, which was so much the more violent from the fact that it had been with so much difficulty suppressed. At first her sobs were so violent and uncontrollable that Deerslayer was a little appalled, and he was abundantly repentant from the instant that he discovered how much greater was the effect produced by his words than he had anticipated. Even the austere and exacting are usually appeased by the signs of contrition, but the nature of Deerslayer did not require proofs of intense feeling so strong in order to bring him down to a level with the regrets felt by the girl herself. He arose, as if an adder had stung him, and the accents of the mother that soothes her child were scarcely more gentle and winning than the tones of his voice, as he now expressed his contrition at having gone so far. "'It was well meant, Judith,' he said, "'but it was not intended to hurt your feelings so much. I have overdone the advice, I see. Yes, I've overdone it, and I crave your pardon for the same. Friendship is an awful thing. Sometimes it chides us for not having done enough, and then, again, it speaks in strong words for having done too much. Howsever, I acknowledge I've overdone the matter, and as I've a real and strong regard for you, I rejoice to say it, inasmuch as it proves how much better you are than my own vanity and conceits had made you out to be." Judith now removed her hands from her face. Her tears had ceased, and she unveiled a countenance so winning with the smile which rendered it even radiant that the young man gazed at her for a moment with speechless delight. "'Say no more, dear Slayer,' she hastily interposed. "'It pains me to hear you find fault with yourself. I know my own weakness, all the better, now I see you have discovered it. The lesson, bitter as I have found it for a moment, shall not be forgotten. We will not talk any longer of these things, for I do not feel myself brave enough for the undertaking, and I should not like the Delaware, or Hist, or even Hetty, to notice my weakness. Farewell, dear Slayer. May God bless and protect you as your honest heart deserves blessings and protection, and as I must think he will." Judith had so far regained the superiority that properly belonged to her better education, high spirit, and surpassing personal advantages, as to preserve the ascendancy she had thus accidentally obtained, and effectually prevented any return to the subject that was as singularly interrupted as it had been singularly introduced. The young man permitted her to have everything her own way, and when she pressed his hard hand in both her own, he made no resistance, but submitted to the homage as quietly, and with quite as matter-of-course a manner, as a sovereign would have received a similar tribute from a subject, or the mistress from her suitor. Feeling had flushed the face and illuminated the whole countenance of the girl, and her beauty was never more resplendent than when she cast a parting glance at the youth. That glance was filled with anxiety, interest, and gentle pity. At the next instant she darted into the hut and was seen no more, though she spoke to Hist from a window to inform her that their friend expected her appearance. "'You know enough of redskin nature, and redskin usages, Watawa, to see the condition I am in on account of this furlough,' commenced the hunter in Delaware as soon as the patient and submissive girl of that people had moved quietly to his side. You will therefore best understand how unlikely I am ever to talk with you again. I've but little to say, but that little comes from long living among your people, and from having observed and noted their usages. The life of a woman is hard at the best, but I must own, though I'm not opinionated in favor of my own color, that it is harder among the red men than it is among the pale-faces. 
This is a pint on which Christians may well boast, if boasting can be set down for Christianity in any manner or form, which I rather think it cannot. Howsever, all women have their trials. Red women have theirn in what I should call the natural way, while white women take them inoculated like. Bear your burthen, Hist, becomingly, and remember, if it be a little toilsome, how much lighter it is than that of most Indian women. I know the sarpent well, what I call cordially, and he will never be a tyrant to anything he loves, though he will expect to be treated himself like a Mohican chief. There will be cloudy days in your lodge, I suppose, for they happen under all usages, and among all people. But by keeping the windows of your heart open there will always be room for the sunshine to enter. You come of a great stock yourself, and so does Chingachgook. It's not very likely that either will ever forget the circumstance and do anything to disgrace your forefathers. Nevertheless, lichen is a tender plant, and never thrives long when watered with tears. Let the earth around your married happiness be moistened by the dews of kindness. My pale brother is very wise. Wa will keep in her mind all that his wisdom tells her. That's judicious and womanly, Hist. Care in listening, and stout-heartedness in holding to good counsel, is a wife's great protection. And now ask the sarpent to come and speak with me, for a moment, and carry away with you all my best wishes and prayers. I shall think of you, Hist, and of your intended husband, let what may come to pass, and always wish you well, here and hereafter, whether the last is to be according to Indian ideas or Christian doctrines. Hist shed no tear at parting. She was sustained by the high resolution of one who had decided on her course, but her dark eyes were luminous with the feelings that glowed within, and her pretty countenance beamed with an expression of determination that was in marked and singular contrast to its ordinary gentleness. It was but a minute ere the Delaware advanced to the side of his friend with the light, noiseless tread of an Indian. "'Come this away, Sarpent. Here, more out of sight of the women.' commenced the deer-slayer, for I've several things to say that mustn't so much as be suspected, much less overheard. You know too well the nature of furloughs and mingos to have any doubts or misgivings concerning what is like to happen, when I get back to the camp. On them two pints, therefore, a few words will go a great way. In the first place, chief, I wish to say a little about Hist, and the manner in which you red men treat your wives. I suppose it's according to the gifts of your people that the women should work, and the men hunt but there's such a thing as moderation in all matters. As for huntin', I see no good reason why any limit should be set to that, but Hist comes of too good a stock to toil like a common drudge. One of your means and standin' need never want for corn or potatoes or anything that the fields yield. Therefore, I hope the hoe will never be put into the hands of any wife of yourn. You know I am not quite a beggar, and all I own, whether in ammunition, skins, arms, or calicoes, I give to Hist should I not come back to claim them by the end of the season. This will set the maiden up, and will buy labor for her for a long time to come. I suppose I needn't tell you to love the young woman, for that you do already, and whomsoever the man rarely loves, he'll be likely enough to cherish. Nevertheless, it can do no harm to say that kind words never rankle, while bitter words do. I know you're a man, Sarpent, that is less apt to talk in his own lodge than to speak at the council fire but forgetful moments may overtake us all, and the practice of kind doin' and kind talkin' is a wonderful advantage in keeping peace in a cabin, as well as on a hunt. "'My ears are open,' returned the Delaware gravely. "'The words of my brother have entered so far that they can never fall out again. 
They are like rings that have no end, and cannot drop. Let him speak on. The song of the wren and the voice of a friend never tire. I will speak a little longer, chief, but you will excuse it for the sake of old companionship, should I now talk about myself. If the worst comes to the worst, it's not likely there'll be much left of me but ashes. So a grave would be useless, and a sort of vanity. On that score I'm no way particular, though it might be well enough to take a look at the remains of the pile, and should any bones or pieces be found, twould be more decent to gather them together and bury them, than to let them lie for the wolves to gnaw at, and howl over. These matters can make no great difference in the mind. But men of white blood and Christian feelings have rather a gift for graves. "'It shall be done as my brother says,' returned the Indian gravely. "'If his mind is full, let him empty it in the bosom of a friend.' "'I thank you, Sarpent. My mind's easy enough, yes. It's tolerable easy. Ideas will come uppermost that I'm not apt to think about in common, it's true. But by striving, again some, and letting other some out, all will come right in the long run. There's one thing, howsoever, chief, that does seem to me to be unreasonable, and again nature, though the missionaries say it's true, and being of my religion and color I feel bound to believe them. They say an Injun may torment and torture the body to his heart's content, and scalp, and cut, and tear, and burn, and consume all his inventions and deviltries until nothing is left but ashes, and they shall be scattered to the four winds of heaven. Yet when the trumpet of God shall sound, all will come together again, and the man will stand forth in his flesh the same creature as to looks, if not as to feelings, that he was afore he was harmed. The missionaries are good men. Mean well, returned the Delaware courteously. They are not great medicines. They think all they say, dear slayer. That is no reason why warriors and orators should be all ears. When Chingachgook shall see the father of Tanamon standing in his scalp, and paint, and warlock, then will he believe the missionaries. Seein' is believin' of a sartainty, ah's me, and some of us may see these things sooner than we thought. I comprehend your meanin' about Tanamon's father, Sarpent, and the idee's a close idee. Tanamon is now an elderly man, say, eighty every day of it, and his father was scalped, and tormented, and burnt, when the present prophet was a youngster. Yes, if one could see that come to pass, there wouldn't be much difficulty in yieldin' faith to all that the missionaries say. Howsever, I am not agin the opinion now, for you must know, Sarpent, that the great principle of Christianity is to believe without seeing, and a man should always act up to his religion and principles, let them be what they may. "'That is strange for a wise nation,' said the Delaware with emphasis. The red man looks hard, that he may see and understand. Yes, that's plausible, and is agreeable to mortal pride, but it's not as deep as it seems. If we could understand all we see, Sarpent, there might be not only sense, but safety, in refusing to give faith to any one thing that we might find uncomprehensible. But when there's so many things about which it may be said we know nothing at all, why there's little use, and no reason, in being difficult touching any one in particular. For my part, Delaware, all my thoughts haven't been on the game, when outlying in the hunts and scoutins of our youth. Many's the hour I've passed pleasantly enough, too, in what is termed contemplation by my people. On such occasions the mind is active, though the body seems lazy and listless. An open spot on a mountain side, where a wide look can be had at the heavens and the earth, is a most judicious place 
for a man to get a just idea of the power of the Manitou, and of his own littleness. At such times there isn't any great disposition to find fault with little difficulties, in the way of comprehension, as there are so many big ones to hide them. Believin' comes easy enough to me at such times, and if the Lord made man first out of earth, as they tell me it is written in the Bible, then turns him into dust at death, I see no great difficulty in the way to bringin' him back in the body, though ashes be the only substance left. These things lie beyond our understandin', though they may and do lie so close to our feelin's. But of all the doctrines, Sarpent, that which disturbs me, and disconcerts my mind the most, is the one which teaches us to think that a pale face goes to one heaven, and a red skin to another. It may separate in death them which lived much together, and loved each other well in life. "'Do the missionaries teach their white brethren to think it is so?' demanded the Indian, with serious earnestness. "'The Delawares believe that good men and brave warriors will hunt together in the same pleasant woods, let them belong to whatever tribe they may, that all the unjust Indians and cowards will have to sneak in with the dogs and the wolves to get venison for their lodges. "'Tis wonderful how many consates mankind have concerning happiness and misery hereafter,' exclaimed the hunter borne away by the power of his own thoughts. Some believe in burnins and flames, and some think punishment is to eat with the wolves and dogs. Then again some fancy heaven to be only the carrying out of their own earthly longings, while others fancy it all gold and shining lights. Well, I've an idea of my own in that matter, which is just this, Sarpent. Whenever I've done wrong, I've generally found twas owin' to some blindness of the mind, which hid the right from view and when sight has returned, then has some sorrow and repentance. Now I can say that after death, when the body is laid aside, or if used at all it is purified and without its longings, the spirit sees all things in their real lights, and never becomes blind to truth and justice. Such being the case, all that has been done in life is beheld as plainly as the sun is seen at noon. The good brings joy, while the evil brings sorrow. There's nothing unreasonable in that but it's agreeable to every man's experience. I thought the pale-faces believed all men were wicked. Who then could ever find the white man's heaven? That's ingenious, but it falls short of the missionary teachings. You'll be Christianized one day, I make no doubt, and then twill all come plain enough. You must know, Sarpent, that there's been a great deed of salvation done, that by God's help enables all men to find a pardon for their wickedness and that is the essence of the white man's religion. I can't stop to talk this matter over with you any longer, for Hetty's in the canoe, and the furlough takes me away. But the time will come when I hope you'll feel these things, for, after all, they must be felt rather than reasoned about. Osme. Well, Delaware, there's my hand. You know it's that of a friend, and will shake it as such, though it never has done you one half the good its owner wishes it had. The Indian took the offered hand, and returned its pressure warmly. Then falling back on his acquired stoicism of manner, which so many mistake for constitutional indifference, he drew up in reserve, and prepared to part from his friend with dignity. Deerslayer, however, was more natural, nor could he have at all cared about giving way to his feelings, had not the recent conduct and language of Judith given him some secret though ill-defined apprehensions of a scene. He was too humble to imagine the truth concerning the actual feelings of that beautiful girl, 
while he was too observant not to have noted the struggle she had maintained with herself, and which had so often led her to the very verge of discovery. That something extraordinary was concealed in her breast he thought obvious enough, and through a sentiment of manly delicacy that would have done credit to the highest human refinement, he shrunk from any exposure of her secret that might subsequently cause regret to the girl herself. He therefore determined to depart, now, and that without any further manifestations of feeling either from him or from others. "'God bless you, Sarpent, God bless you,' cried the hunter, as the canoe left the side of the platform. "'Your Manitou and my God only know when and where we shall meet again. I shall count it a great blessing, and a full reward for any little good I may have done on earth, if we shall be permitted to know each other, and to consort together hereafter, as we have so long done in these pleasant woods afore us.' Chingachgook waved his hand, drawing the light blanket he wore over his head as a Roman would conceal his grief in his robes. He slowly withdrew into the ark in order to indulge his sorrow and his musings alone. Deerslayer did not speak again until the canoe was halfway to the shore. Then he suddenly ceased paddling at an interruption that came from the mild musical voice of Hetty. Why do you go back to the Hurons, Deerslayer? demanded the girl. They say I am feeble-minded, and such they never harm. But you have as much sense as Hurry Harry, and more, too, Judith thinks, though I don't see how that can well be. Ah, Hetty! Afore we land I must converse a little with you, child, and that, too, on matters touching your own welfare, principally. Stop paddling, or rather that the Mingos needn't think we are plotting and contriving, and so treat us accordingly, just dip your paddle lightly, and give the canoe a little motion, and no more. That's just the idea, and the movement. I see you're ready enough at an appearance, and might be made useful at a circumvention if it was lawful now to use one. That's just the idea, and the movement. Ah's me! Deceit and a false tongue are evil things, and altogether unbecoming our color, Hetty. But it is a pleasure and a satisfaction to outdo the contrivances of a redskin in the strife of lawful warfare. My path has been short, and is like soon to have an end, but I can see that the wanderings of a warrior aren't altogether among brambles and difficulties. There's a bright side to a war-path, as well as to most other things, if we'll only have the wisdom to see it, and the generosity to own it. And why should your war-path, as you call it, come so near to an end, Deerslayer? Because, my good girl, my furlough comes so near to an end. They're likely to have pretty much the same termination as regards time one following on the heels of the other, as a matter of course. "'I don't understand your meaning, Deerslayer,' returned the girl, looking a little bewildered. "'Mother always said people ought to speak more plainly to me than most other persons, because I'm feeble-minded. Those that are feeble-minded don't understand as easily as those that have sense.' "'Well, then, Hetty, the simple truth is this. You know that I'm now a captive to the Hurons, and captives can't do in all things as they please.' "'But how can you be a captive?' eagerly interrupted the girl, "'when you are out here on the lake in father's best canoe, and the Indians are in the woods with no canoe at all. That can't be true, dear Slayer.' "'I wish with all my heart and soul, Hetty, that you was right, and that I was wrong, instead of your being all wrong and I being only too near the truth. Free as I seem to your eyes, gal, I'm bound hand and foot in reality.' "'Well, it is a great misfortune not to have sense.' Now I can't see or understand that you are a captive or bound in any manner. If you are bound, with what are your hands and feet fastened? With a furlough, gal. 
That's a thong that binds tighter than any chain. One may be broken, but the other can't. Ropes and chains allow of knives and desate and contrivances, but a furlough can be neither cut, slipped, nor circumvented. What sort of a thing is a furlough, then, if it be stronger than hemp or iron? I never saw a furlough. I hope you may never feel one, gal. The tie is altogether in the feelin's in these matters, and therefore is to be felt and not seen. You can understand what it is to give a promise, I dare say, good little Hetty. Certainly. A promise is to say you will do a thing, and that binds you to be as good as your word. Mother always kept her promises to me, and then she said it would be wicked if I didn't keep my promises to her, and to everybody else. You have had a good mother in some matters, child, whatever she may have been in other some. That is a promise and as you say it must be kept. Now, I fell into the hands of the Mingos last night, and they let me come off to see my friends and send messages into my own colour, if any such feel concern in my account, on condition that I shall be back when the sun is up to-day, and take whatever their revenge and hatred can contrive in the way of torments, in satisfaction for the life of a warrior that fell by my rifle, as well as for that of the young woman shot by hurry, and other disappointments met with on and about this lake what is called a promise atween mother and darter, or even atween strangers in the settlements, is called a furlough when given by one soldier to another on a war-path. And now I suppose you understand my situation, Hetty." The girl made no answer for some time, but she ceased paddling altogether, as if the novel idea distracted her mind too much to admit of other employment. Then she resumed the dialogue earnestly and with solicitude. "'Do you think the Hurons will have the heart to do what you say, dear Slayer?' she asked. "'I have found them kind and harmless.' "'That's true enough as concerns one like you, Hetty. But it's a very different affair when it comes to an open enemy, and he too the owner of a pretty sartin rifle. I don't say that they bear me special malice on account of any exploits already performed, for that would be bragging, as it might be, on the verge of the grave. But it's no vanity to believe that they know one of their bravest and cunningest chiefs fell by my hands.' Such be in the case, the tribe would reproach them if they failed to send the spirit of a pale-face to keep the company of the spirit of their red brother, always supposing that he can catch it. I look for no marcy, Hetty, at their hands, and my principal sorrow is that such a calamity should befall me on my first war-path, that it would come sooner or later every soldier counts on and expects. "'The Huron shall not harm you, dear Slayer,' cried the girl, much excited. "'Tis wicked as well as cruel.' I have the Bible here to tell them so. Do you think I would stand by and see you tormented? I hope not, my good Hetty, I hope not. And therefore, when the moment comes, I expect you will move off, and not be a witness of what you can't help, while it would grieve you. But I haven't stopped the paddles to talk of my own afflictions and difficulties, but to speak a little plainly to you, gal, concerning your own matters. What can you say to me, dear Slayer? Since mother died, few talk to me of such things. So much the worse, poor gal. Yes, tis so much the worse, for one of your state of mind needs frequent talking to, in order to escape the snares and desates of this wicked world. You haven't forgotten Hurry Harry, gal, so soon, I calculate. I, I forget Henry March, exclaimed Hetty, starting. Why should I forget him, dear Slayer, when he is our friend, and only left us last night? Then the large bright star that mother loved so much to gaze at was just over the top of yonder tall pine on the mountain as Hurry got into the canoe. And when you landed him on the point near the East Bay, it wasn't more than the length of Judith's handsomest ribbon above it. And how can you know how long I was gone, or how far I went to land Hurry, 
seein' you were not with us, and the distance was so great to say nothing of the night. Oh, I know when it was, well enough, returned Hetty, positively. There's more ways than one for counting time and distance. When the mind is engaged it is better than any clock. Mine is feeble, I know, but it goes true enough in all that touches poor Hurry Harry. Judith will never marry March, Deerslayer. That's the pint, Hetty. That's the very pint I want to come to. I suppose you know that it's natural for young people to have kind feelin's for one another, more especially when one happens to be a youth and t'other a maiden. Now, one of your years and mind, gal, that has neither father nor mother, and who lives in a wilderness frequented by hunters and trappers, needs to be on her guard against evils she little dreams of. What harm can it be to think well of a fellow-creature, returned Hetty, simply, though the conscious blood was stealing to her cheeks in spite of a spirit so pure that it scarce knew why it prompted the blush? The Bible tells us to love them who despitefully use us, and why shouldn't we like them that do not? Ah, Hetty, the love of the missionaries isn't the sort of liking I mean. Answer me one thing, child. Do you believe yourself to have mind enough to become a wife and a mother? That's not a proper question to ask a young woman, Deerslayer, and I'll not answer it," returned the girl in a reproving manner, much as a parent rebukes a child for an act of indiscretion. If you have anything to say about Hurry, I'll hear that, but you must not speak evil of him. He is absent, and tis unkind to talk evil of the absent. Your mother has given you so many good lessons, Hetty, that my fears for you are not as great as they were. Nevertheless, a young woman without parents, in your state of mind, and who is not without beauty, must always be in danger in such a lawless region as this. I would say nothing amiss of Hurry, who in the main is not a bad man for one of his callin'. But you ought to know one thing, which it may not be altogether pleasant to tell you, but which must be said. March has a desperate likin' for your sister Judith. Well, what of that? Everybody admires Judith. She's so handsome, and Hurry has told me again and again how much he wishes to marry her. But that will never come to pass, for Judith don't like Hurry. She likes another, and talks about him in her sleep. Though you need not ask me who he is, for all the gold in King George's crown, and all the jewels, too, wouldn't tempt me to tell you his name. If sisters can't keep each other's secrets, who can? Certainly, I do not wish you to tell me, Hetty, nor would it be any advantage to a dying man to know. What the tongue says, when the mind's asleep, neither head nor heart is answerable for. I wish I knew why Judith talks so much in her sleep about officers and honest hearts and false tongues, but I suppose she don't like to tell me as I'm feeble-minded. Isn't it odd, Deerslayer, that Judith don't like Hurry, he who is the bravest-looking youth that ever comes upon the lake, and is as handsome as she is herself? Father always said they would be the comeliest couple in the country, though Mother didn't fancy March any more than Judith. There's no telling what will happen, they say, until things actually come to pass. Osme, Well, poor Hetty, tis of no great use to talk to them that can't understand you. And so I'll say no more about what I did wish to speak of, though it lay heavy on my mind. Put the paddle in motion again, gal, and we'll push for the shore, for the sun is nearly up, and my furlough is almost out. The canoe now glided ahead, holding its way towards the point where Deerslayer well knew that his enemies expected him, and where he now began to be afraid he might not arrive in season to redeem his plighted faith. Hetty, perceiving his impatience without very clearly comprehending its cause, however, seconded his efforts in a way that soon rendered their timely return no longer a matter of doubt. Then, and then only, 
did the young man suffer his exertions to flag, and Hetty began again to prattle in her simple confiding manner, though nothing farther was uttered that it may be thought necessary to relate. End of chapter 26 Recording by Bill Borst